0: The No Sleep Podcast presents Suddenly Shocking, Volume 15. A collection of short, sudden stories with lots of twists and turns. These furiously fast tales are postcard-length, and they can take you on long journeys before even leaving the station. So, settle in and join us as we serve up these bite sized stories dripping with dark and foreboding horror.
1: Where's the baby? By Lindsay Moore.
2: Hey, honey.
3: Where are you? I just got home and you're not here.
4: I'm taking the baby for a walk.
5: The baby is here. I found him in his crib.
4: You left him alone? He's with me. He's in his stroller. Don't lie to me.
6: I'm not lying. Here, I'll send you a picture.
7: He's here, with me, asleep in his stroller.
5: You sent me a picture of an empty stroller.
6: You sent me a picture of an empty crib? Is, is this some kind of joke? Oh, oh, fantastic. Now, now he's awake.
8: Can not you hear him crying through the
9: phone?
6: I hear him crying because you woke him up with this nonsense. I'm nearly home.
8: I'm
3: on the front step.
6: I only see you.
2: I'm holding him up. You're waving your arms like a lunatic. You're
10: pushing an empty stroller.
6: I'm sick of this prank. It's gone on long enough and it wasn't funny to begin with.
11: Do you
3: really not see him? Oh god,
11: where is he? Where's the baby?
12: Maximum 3-Hour Parking By Manon Lysette Weekends were the worst when it came to parking. The street was always full of cars, and the only spots available were in a maximum 3-hour parking zone. This meant, whenever she stayed over at her boyfriend's, she needed to go out and move the car throughout the night to avoid getting ticketed. At 7.13pm, she heard odd growling from the bushes. At 10.09pm, she saw what she thought were eyes watching her, big and saucer-like, reflecting the streetlight like those of an owl. At 1.11am, she felt something breathing down her neck and ran back inside. At 4.15 a.m., she refused to go, said she'd rather risk a ticket, so her boyfriend offered to move her car. 7.20 a.m. She found his hand clutching the car handle in a vice-like grip, and a streak of blood leading to the bushes.
11: Unlocked by Ariana Picard Jane could
13: just barely hear the metal knob jiggling. Her family never remembered their keys. Someone was always yelling for her. But Jane put her foot down today. She ignored the squeaking knob, the pounding knocks, rolling her eyes when she heard someone, her brother most likely, call out to ask if anyone was home. If they wanted in, they should not rely on her to leave the door open at all times, or come at their beck and call. Speaking of calls, she was surprised she hadn't received one. Just as she went to look, a text from her brother appeared. Held up at practice. i picked something up for dinner on the way back. Jane's eyes widened. The noise at the front door had stopped. She looked just in time to see the back door creep open. The door her family always left unlatched to let themselves in. The door she forgot to lock.
14: By Jeffrey Ferrer. Jane skipped down the path, her new white dress flowing in the wind. School was finally out, and she had all summer to explore and play. Days of sleeping in and nights of staying up late were squarely in her sights. As she rounded the last corner on the way home, she approached the densest part of the path, the section furthest from civilization. She stopped in surprise when she saw a newly added section. Strange dark concrete was laid down to create a new trail. Jane walked up with her childhood innocence in tow, ready for summer's first adventure. Without hesitation, she walked a few feet onto the path. Before she had a chance to react, the path began undulating and retracting. The monster's tongue reeled Jane in. After a few moments and some muffled sound it extended its tongue back out, patiently waiting for its next snack.
8: Monster Hunting by Jeremiah Dylan Cook. Everyone had downloaded the new Monster Hunting app. It had turned your neighborhood into a virtual horror movie as you walked around tracking signals to find and capture famous creatures. I caught Frankenstein at my local park, Dracula in the grocery store, and a deep one at the public pool. In my latest target, a classic gray alien had led me on a chase through town all day, but i finally cornered it in an alley just after sunset. As I tapped my phone to deploy my capture beam, a bright light came down from the sky. Wind whipped me as I flew upwards, and the next thing I knew, I was surrounded by. grays. As they leered at me with their huge black eyes, I received a psychic message. They were collecting humans for a game, and I was their latest addition. But they only needed my lungs.
3: Blind Spot by Tracy Brigden. Being blind has never felt so cruel. He says they want to capture us. He describes the gruesome traps he's set throughout the house. I daren't move from this bed. I pleaded with him to take them down, but he got very angry and left me for a whole day. When he returned, I begged for water. He placed the glass across the room and said, Find it. Now he ignores me. His delusions are getting worse. I can't get to the bathroom. I have nothing to eat. The hammering is relentless. I think he's drinking. Late last night, there was a terrible crash. I heard him, downstairs, far off, crying for help. Now his cries have stopped. I call out, but there's no answer. Even crawling across the floor terrifies me. I am so thirsty.
12: Keith's Reward by Penny Up. Keith made money capturing cats. He hated cats, but loved money. No one suspected he was responsible for the disappearances. He was hailed a hero, even if he only found cats when rewards were offered. When he saw a poster with the biggest reward yet, a grand for a plain tabby, Keith smiled. He'd already caught that cat. It was waiting with the clowder he kept in his basement. Yet when he went to claim his prize, the tabby was the only cat he found. Her glowing eyes watched him search the empty shadows. However it happened, at least the cat with the reward remained. When he reached for his meal ticket, her mouth opened wide, hissing and howling, with not the sound of one angry cat, but many. Her jaw cracked and extended, an impossible maw, now a black hole with teeth, until Keith fell forward and down, down, down...
15: fugue by Angela nolan when the piano behind me began to play i was so enchanted that i just soaked it in for a few seconds before i remembered i was alone i turned quickly to the piano to see slender disembodied fingers playing as the tune progressed the player's full form revealed itself to me she had a slim frame and auburn curls cascaded down her back i couldn't see her face but I imagined her beauty was breathtaking. To my amazement, a cello then materialised beside the piano to complement the piece. Again, I saw just the fingers at first, but a man's form revealed itself as he played. He had his back to me too, as though I wasn't the intended audience. The same happened with a bassist, two violinists and finally a flautist, six instruments being played masterfully in front of me where I'd only had a piano that I could barely attempt scales on. As the piece reached its satisfying crescendo, the players began to turn to me one by one, and I realized why their backs had been turned. The music started again through their mouths, stretched painfully wide, but this time it was a discordant jumble. Their pitch-black eyes all bore down on me. My organs turned cold and heavy as I realized their intention without words. It was time for me to join the orchestra.
7: Reflections By A.J. Kelly My parents kept the nightlight on in the hallway, so only a sliver of light passed into the bathroom. It was narrow, with no windows, and a large, low-hanging mirror in front of the counter. That night, as I stepped into the dark bathroom to relieve myself, my heartbeat thudded against my ribcage, We'd lived in this house as long as I was alive, but a chill crept over me as I, in my half-asleep state, passed by the mirror to get to the bathroom without flicking the light on. Ignoring instinct, I glanced sleepily over into the mirror. The faint light spilling into the bathroom cast long and threatening shadows. It was then that I saw my reflection staring back at me. I've always been pale, with long blonde hair and bright blue eyes, so my reflection was already startling against the backdrop of dark walls surrounded by eerie shadows. But the most terrifying sight was the way my reflection grinned at me, her teeth too sharp and jagged in her mouth. She reached out a sickly thin arm out toward me, seeming to reach through the mirror itself, and beckoned with a bony finger. I felt warm piss run down my pajamas. When I made no movement, she leaned forward, her bones seeming to creak and pop and grab my wrist in a death grip. Her mouth dropped open, a low keening coming from her cracked lips. I began screaming. I didn't stop screaming until my parents rushed in panic filling their faces as they flipped on the light switch. I was alone. The reflection in the mirror was me again. Tears streamed down my cheeks. My parents stared back at me, confused and worried. I slept in their bed that night, and several nights after. For the last seven years, I've avoided any and all mirrors in the dark. I used to duck down and army crawl to get to the toilet until my parents, exasperated, tossed a sheet over our mirror. It wasn't until college that I realized my fear was completely irrational. Obviously, my reflection wasn't going to get me. My roommate laughed when I recalled the story as she tacked up her new dorm mirror. Joking around about it made me feel stupid and childish. A few months into the semester, a storm blew through and knocked all the lights out in the freshman door. It was the oldest dorm building on campus, and of course the electricity was doomed to go out. I woke up to the building shaking from the thunder outside and felt my bladder begging for relief. As I quietly stepped into the hallway, I realized the lights were out. I could hear a few students joking around down the hallway with their doors open. The dorm bathrooms are pretty basic, with several bathroom stalls and sinks lining each side of one section and a row of shower stalls in the other. I didn't have a second thought as I stepped up to the sink to wash my hands in the darkness. All I could think about was getting back into my warm bed. I glanced up, I suppose an automatic response, and glimpsed an image of myself in the dark. I swallowed back the fear in my chest. I made a silly face, crossing my eyes and sticking out my tongue. Satisfied that it was still me staring back, I smiled at my reflection. But then, slowly, the smile on my face slid down into a grimace. My features thinned and turned a sickly pale. I closed my eyes, forcing the image away this time, not wanting to give in to my childhood fears. When I opened my eyes, the reflection of my face was inches from mine, as though I had leaned closer into the mirror. She snarled at me. I froze. This is a bad dream. She lunged forward, snaking her skeletal hands around my throat and hauling me into the mirror, head first. Instead of hitting solid glass, I was forced through a thick veil and tumbled into a darkness that filled my soul with absolute terror. I rolled and threw myself back onto my feet, turning to face the monster that attacked me. As I turned, I felt my chest tighten. Through the thinly-veiled portal, I saw her steel-blue eyes glaring at me. She appeared to be a normal girl now, with the same pale skin and straight blonde hair I had once donned, I want my life back, bitch. The reflection growled at me. And then she punched the mirror with a tiny fist. Throwing my own world into blackness.
5: Baby Killer Incident By Torres Anders Olven Sometimes when I get really bored, I'll frequent a fancy restaurant, saunter up to a table full of strangers, and ask them, all hushed and quiet, Say, what's the name of that painter chap that cut off his ear? Van Gogh. They'll answer, with a tone of slight annoyance. Wrong! I'll yell whilst slicing off my ear, dangling it gleefully before them. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention. I'm a painter. The joke wouldn't really work if I weren't. It'd be fucking stupid. I've only pulled it off twice, though, on account that I only ever had two of the fucking things. Where was I going with this? Right! Right! Uh, the incident. I'm not sure you've caught on yet, but I'm not fucking right in the head. I guess my mom accidentally kicked me down the stairs one too many times as a baby or something. In essence, this means I don't get my D-O-S-E like you normal folk do. I need extreme stimulants to get all juiced up with the good stuff. Dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins... No, not drugs. Weird fucking shit. Shit you wouldn't believe. (laughs) You know about the dark web? Fuck me. In your line of work, I bet you're a leading expert. (laughs) Dark shit gets my brain spraying the stuff like a fucking geyser. Like cutting off my ears. So I frequent these secret societies. Underground clubs, sub-underground clubs... Fucking subterranean cave system clubs. They have it all, you know. Snuff, kinky sex shit, murder parties, you fucking name it. That's where I met the baby killer. I'm not saying he actually kills babies. He just had that face. Like he just sort of knew that this guy gets up in the morning and slaughters babies for fun, you know? No? Really? Really? In this place? Well, I guess you can't really see that good through this thing. He comes up to me and he says, Hey, Tilly. That's my name. I hear you like fucked up shit. I say, yeah, what of it? Come with me. I'll fucking show you. So I follow him into this dungeon. And he pulls open a steel door, and I just fall flat on my ass when I see it. They got her all chained up, arms to the ceiling. And the fucking smell is like a perpetually sunlit mass grave, only so much worse. I say her, but they're androgynous, aren't they? The wings were massive, like a small fucking plane... And I guess they used to be white. Weren't any more, though. They picked them clean. Ripped the feathers right out. They flogged her. Cut her. Carved her. Sliced her. Stuck out her eyes. But she just kept coming back. Kept regenerating. It's the most fucked up thing I ever saw. And my D.O.S.E., overflowed. Why am I telling you this? Isn't it obvious? I'm doing us both a solid here. I get to confess, and in return, I solidify your faith. Angels are real, Father. And they taste fucking amazing.
16: Minutes by Kane Maddox. Taking minutes during meetings is a soul sucking chore. You have to sit down, shut up, and copy everything that the important people say. The people who aren't you. Action item one. Action item two. Susan's on leave. Action item three. Action Item 4, the client's pulling the deadline forward, so tell the developers to work overtime. Action Item 5, Action Item 6, not enough time to nail the safety audit, so let's just massage the evidence a little. Action Item 7, Action Item 8, some smartass in the last town hall meeting brought up the company's carbon footprint, so now we'll have to pitch a sock puppet climate committee to shut her up. Action Item 9, Action Item 10, sorry Dylan, that's not on today's agenda. Those are the minutes you'll take when you're the newest member of the leadership team. But soon, you'll understand what they're really saying. The first thing I should have noticed was Leon's eyes. He'd found me two years ago at my old college's career fair. The way he talked about the company's product could have fooled anyone. He had this magic that pulled people in, made them want to follow him. Something in his eyes, maybe. I didn't need a degree to know that a well-paying job with plenty of room for advancement sure beat coding exams and ramen noodles. The next day... I used what little savings I had to buy a tailored suit and classy black heels, and told my thesis advisor where to stick it. Now, Leon's watching me from across the table, and there's something else in his eyes. They're the wrong kind of dark. Not the kind of dark he gets when I bring up how the risk assessment is going. No, this dark is much less human. I return his gaze, and he begins to suck me in, unravels me like a spool of thread, and pulls me down, 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 and when I finally break away and catch my reflection in my laptop screen, there's less of me looking back than there was before. Sam had been the one I used to point to whenever my old teammates vented about how bad the leadership team was. I'd say, hey, that's not fair. Sam took me out for coffee just last week, and she gave me awesome advice on my career progression. My teammates would shake their heads and say, careful, she's got teeth, that Sam. Sam. And I just laugh and call them jealous. Now I'm wondering if I should write it in the minutes that Sam is gnawing on the table in the corner. Her teeth are ripping off splinters of oak and spitting them into Dylan's mug. I ask Dylan if I can get him a new coffee. And he wails a hymn for the damned. I take that as a no. Ethan has a habit of being touchy with female employees. It's against company policy. But company policy doesn't apply to the CEO. When he first invited me out for lunch, I was too excited to notice how cold his hand felt on top of mine. He talked about profits, new products, and saving costs. About how expensive paying the data entry staff was. About how anyone who could fix that problem, automated away, maybe, would be well on track to becoming deputy CTO. Now I'm well on track to getting my wrist broken. His icy hand is grabbing me. And he's ranting off numbers, the numbers we've lost, the numbers we've saved. But the language he's speaking isn't one that can be typed down, not even if I had both hands. And maybe I should write it in the minutes that H.R. needs to investigate this. But H.R. is Perry, and he's throwing up oil on the floor. It's inky black, and it's eating past my heels, past my ankles, and it's crawling higher, higher, higher. Soon it'll drip down my throat and wriggle through my tear ducts. And I'll be one of them.
17: Die on your feet by Warren Benedetto. Grady, (laughs) I belly crawled frantically along the sidewalk the scabs of my knees and elbows blossoming with fresh blood.
5: Stay down, goddammit!
17: Grady looked back at me. He was crouching on the street, his head perilously close to the ceiling of fog that had descended upon the city. Sweat trickled from under his faded red baseball cap, his eyes blazing with defiance.
5: Don't you get it? They're doing this. It's all part of their plan.
17: I reached Grady's position and pulled him down to the ground. There is no they. And this? I motioned to the ash-gray fog overhead. Is everywhere. It's not just here. It's all over the world right now. None of us knew what the fog was or where it had come from. But we knew that it concealed something awful. Something hungry. Something... The only way to survive was to keep low, to stay within the layer of clear air between the fog and the ground. Rising any higher meant certain death. Grady barked out a laugh.
5: (laughs) That's exactly what they want you to believe. Keep your head down. Don't stand up for yourself. Well, that's not how we do things around
1: here.
17: He jabbed a finger at the tattoo on his forearm. A bald eagle clutching an American flag in one talon and what looked like an AR-15
5: in the other. Nobody's going to put a boot on my face. If I want to stand, I'll stand.
17: There's no boot on your face, man. We're just trying to stop you from dying. Grady jerked his arm out of my grip then spat on the ground. I'll take my chances. My voice rose with frustration. Damn it, Grady! It's not just about you! You could draw attention to them, too! I pointed at the small group of survivors huddled on the ground nearby. Among them was a pregnant woman, an elderly couple, a sickly-looking child. You could get us all killed.
5: It ain't real! Don't you get it? It's a hoax! It's mind control! Think... Have you ever actually seen one of the things up there?
17: No, but I've seen what it does to people. So have you. I put my hand on his shoulder. Come on, man. You saw what happened to Cheryl. I noticed a brief flicker of doubt in Grady's eyes. Then it dimmed, replaced with something else. Something darker.
5: Denial. I don't know what I saw.
17: I stared at him in disbelief. Even after watching his wife die in front of his eyes, he still wasn't willing to acknowledge the truth, to admit he was wrong.
5: It's like my dad used to say. He began to stand.
17: His head and shoulders disappeared into the fog. It's
5: better to die on your feet than to live on your...
17: Suddenly, telltale screech pierced the air. A hulking shadow swung through the fog like a pendulum, swooping past with a shriek, (coughs) taking Grady along with it. All that remained was a fine mist of atomized blood hanging in the air. A moment later, something red and wet thudded onto the ground nearby. It was Grady's hat. The top half of his head was still inside. Well, Greedy, I thought. I hope your dad was right. Then I crawled back toward the remaining survivors on my knees.
18: Portrait of Remy, by E.E. King. It was a time of light, a time of shadows, a time of translucence and opacity. There was the hardness of cubes, there was the roundness of landscape, there was a myriad of color and shades of umbra. Artists swarmed in schools like fish. The whole was greater than the art. Paintings were points. The brush made the line. The line, the composition. The composition, the painting. The paintings, the exhibition. The exhibition, the group. Rarely did a single artist grab fame. In unity was the individual expressed. Thus was the art scene in Paris. And Paris was the world of art. There was one group of painters, composed of the younger progeny of poor gentility and the scions of the nouveau riche. They had nothing to say, and they were saying it boldly in broad strokes and bright colors. When these works were not enthusiastically received... They produced another exhibition of subtle hues and somber tones. The single reviewer they had managed to tempt to their exhibit wrote, A tour of Newcastle at night, while drugged, sleeping, and blindfolded would be more stimulating. They attempted landscapes, plein air, still life, and collage. But their greatest success remained the Newcastle show. At least there, they had received a review. They were almost ready to give up, to throw down their brushes and go into business or do something equally foolhardy. When they discovered Rémy, a penniless orphan of haunting beauty, gazing at his hopeless grace, the group realized they had not yet attempted portraiture. Without much faith and scant enthusiasm, they set to work, each producing a series of pieces, which they entitled Young Man Sitting. Promising to forswear the art enterprise after this final exhibition, they extracted a few last favors from their long-suffering relations. One of the group had a cousin who was a publisher and could thus produce free pamphlets, and another an uncle who was a brewer. Thus, they were able to draw a few thirsty art critics to their latest and probably last offering. If youth is beauty and beauty youth, then this is the only show to see, or that you need to see, raved a critic. No one was more surprised by the success of the group than the group, except perhaps their forbearing families. The group was delighted. Their relatives less so, as this small success would doubtless lead to further requests for brushes, paints, rent, free beer, and flyers. The group immediately began work upon a new portrait series of a young girl. But alas, this display was totally ignored. They once again approached Remy. But the glamour had dissipated, and he was no longer interested in posing. They remembered the exuberant grand opening, while he remembered the long, cramped hours of sitting motionless. He was placated by an offer of dinner, and, after much beer, a bargain was struck. The second show, Young Man Sitting Two, was once again received enthusiastically. Then began the most exciting time for the group, Show after show was received with adulation. Success piled upon success, glory upon glory. They were the toast of the town, the caviar of the Cosmopolitans and the Wolverines' pajamas. Remy, however, was not enjoying their success. While they painted, he posed. While they were acclaimed, he was cramped. He wanted his freedom. He would model no more. The group is now almost forgotten. Their name only a minuscule entry in obscure art books. Their successful shows read thusly. Young Man Sitting. Young Man Sitting Two. Young Man Sitting Three. Young Man Bound to Chair. Gaunt young man bound to chair. Decomposing young man bound to chair. And the final series of their brief success? Skeleton in chair. Nothing is known or recorded of Remy.
1: Dead Man's Fingers by Marcus Demanda. They came up after the lightning storm, right at the base of a tree stump. I wasn't able to dig out of the backyard. Two clusters of five greenish blue roots, each one about an inch to an inch and a half long. Odd thing about them, As I knelt for a closer look and fished out my phone from my back pocket, with the dark yellow caps at the ends of them. Those caps looked just like fingernails, swear to god. Didn't dwell on it though. No, I just took a few quick pics, uploaded them to Facebook, and tapped out the question. Anyone know what this shit is? Funny, I guess that a man of my common sense should resort to the unfiltered internet for educational purposes. But I had two very good reasons for this approach. One, I have a lot of friends who are highly educated. And two, say what you will about the internet and its many imperfections. It's also very fast. Didn't take me long to find out what was really going on. I was only just returning the chainsaw to its place on the inside wall of the shed out back when I got the answer. It came from my buddy Stu, who works outdoor crime scenes for homicide.
19: That's Xylaria polymorpha, my friend. More commonly known as dead man's fingers. It's a fungus. Don't have a heart attack. This'll be good for you.
1: I have to admit, the sight of those strange little things poking up from the ground on my own property kind of made my insides twitch in a way I didn't like. I text it back. Good how. What's it do?
19: Same as any fungus does. It eats the leftovers from the living. Should break down that stump you've been bitching about in a month or so without you having to do much
1: of anything. As for the chainsaw and the spade I'd brought out back, they'd gone unused. For now. A man of common sense doesn't go just cutting into things when he doesn't know what they are. Now, maybe I didn't have to. Could probably clear that creepy-ass growth with a weed whacker, though, after it broke down the stump. I texted Stu. Thanks, man. That's a load-off. I was able to get on with my Saturday. Enjoy the weekend. Not worry about things. That was a week ago. Things are different now. Looking out the man cave window late this afternoon, I noticed something funny. Something wrong. From where I sat, that tree stump looked like it was already gone. Not shrunken, not broken down. Gone. Naturally, I went out to investigate. I found pieces of it, a little bit lying over here, a little bit lying over there. But I didn't come too close. I was uneasy. There weren't just two clusters of five fingers poking out of the ground this time. There were four of them. Holy shit. And they were longer, almost the size of real hands. They were more defined, too, bent and seeming to claw into the ground, their knobby, swollen joints uncannily like knuckles. It was as if they wanted to break free. Like they wanted to move. A quick search on my phone revealed the Xylaria polymorpha Doesn't always sprout in neat clusters of five each. They're completely fucking random. What was happening in my backyard didn't make sense. Fuck the weed whacker. I said to myself, it's chainsaw time. And now? Now I've got another question for my friend. But I don't expect he'll have a good answer for this one. I text him anyway. Tell me something, old buddy, old pal. Does the dead man's finger fungus bleed?
4: By Jessica Peter September 1916 Corselet France She shudders, huddled against the mud at her back The mud at her feet The mud soaking into her socks Her tunic Even that holy of holies, her sleeping sack Her feet haven't been dry since Calais. Richardson pops up, youthful face spotted with freckles, reddish baby fuzz gleaming in the torchlight.
20: Jonesy, I wanted to tell you something.
4: He's more earnest than she could ever be. His voice is too exuberant for this place. A farm boy plunked in from some small village... His mouth keeps moving, but the thundering rumble of a tank drowns him out. Every time. He shakes his head, slapping the trench wall behind her in good-natured camaraderie. (laughs) He tilts his head back to laugh, grins so wide it splits his face. Inexplicable joy in this hell. Then... One shot. One, in the never-ending clamor. Liquid sprays across her mouth. Richardson thuds to his knees, then onto his side, cap sliding off. She wipes the back of her hand across her mouth as she drops down beside him. Her hand comes away gray, but she doesn't have the capacity to figure that out. Not yet. Richardson groans. An animal sound of pain. Still alive, then. He shouldn't be. The top of his head is gone. Lumpy pinkish bits visible. His cap is splashed with the same gray that was on her mouth. He sucks in a breath that rattles out of him. (sighs) She winces at the sound of her brother's name Guilt pricks her Not for coming here as him She'd be his protector to the last But for deceiving her fellow soldiers They fight They bleed They die together They deserve better than her lies they deserve to know her. The one thing she can't give. Yes? She's unable to say anything else. Kill me. The garbled voice is barely words anymore. But she understands. Richardson's groans give way to high pitched keening. Grabbing her canvas sack, she pushes it over his mouth and nose and holds it there. He doesn't fight. Soon he's still. She goes in search of soap and water. She doesn't speak to anyone, doesn't make eye contact. When she finds what she's searching for, she scrubs, scrubs, scrubs. She shouldn't feel guilty for giving mercy when she's done so much worse to so many more. But the rest was war. And this is personal. Richardson's who she wishes she were. Open-minded, hard on his sleeve, everyone's best friend. At least he was now he's gone and she's what's left so she does feel guilty and she can't get clean she's Lady Macbeth and it's out damned spot and who would have thought the young man had so much brain in him and soon her hands and face are pristine the cleanest things in this whole damned trench The only thing the mud doesn't touch. Except there is a spot. A tiny black spot south of her left thumb. The more she scrubs, the bigger it gets. Until her hands are red and chapped and still so pristine. Other than the spot. That damned spot. Now it's the size of a penny... She looks away, breath coming quicker and quicker again. Coming here, she was supposed to bring her family pride, show what she was made of, prove herself in valorous combat, be home by Christmas. But instead, it's this. Mud and blood and lies spot is the size of a quarter. When she goes to touch it, her finger goes nowhere. No skin. No muscle. No tendon. No bone. A gap in her. A gap in reality. Men are calling, and it's time to move. In seconds, she has everything she owns, and they're off. Off. A line of army ants. Out of the trench and along thin planks of wood, surrounded by sucking clay deep enough to sink a man. Off in the coal blackness toward the red flashes and the rolling thunder. Off. Toward the sharp punctuations of whizbangs and the screaming of shells. She swings her arms briskly. Her left hand is gone. There's only a fuzzy stump at the end of her arm. No pain, just emptiness. She stumps, shifting to the edge of the plank so others can pass. A voice sighs from the darkness. She jumps. The sound of her own name scaring her more than the damned spot that is her hand. No, the spot that is her arm. The gap has spread. It's as if she never had a left arm at all. Then she sees the white moon face in the clay. Tears running down cheeks to splash the muck surrounding him. She doesn't jump this time. He's a fellow soldier, but a stranger, crying out for some other woman. A coincidence. Except that nobody else stops. Nobody else notices the man, who's about to get sucked under. So she stays. Final vigil. In a moment, the clay does what clay does. Sucks the man under with a pop. And he's gone. One more life sacrifice to this blood-soaked, blood-hungry land. She shifts to swing her bag over her shoulder with her right arm. But it's gone too. Even the bag missing. The men snaking along the boards no longer edge past. They tramp by as if she isn't there at all. And maybe she isn't. When she looks down where her body should be, there's nothing but blackness. Blackness and clay. She bought the lie along with so many young men, a generation splattered across the battlefields of Western Europe. Death by imperialism. Guilt kept pricking for her deception, for her arrogance. For her willingness to kill the farm boys with peach fuzz and wide grins on the other side. She hadn't come only to protect her brother. She'd come for the guns and the glory. She'd found the guns. But no glory. Just death. And the mud. Always the mud. And then...
13: Intruder by Jordan Dahl. I don't appreciate the term exorcist denotes a brutish bodyguard kind of vibe forcefully and tactlessly expunging a troublesome pest. I prefer lost soul relocator, which more aptly fits the tender discussion and precise process of helping a spirit move on. Over the years, I have finessed the innate senses we're all born with, the biofeedback which crosses neurological and spiritual wires to help detect what is beyond our physical senses. What do you call a chill? I call a tactile greeting. What do you name the heebie-jeebies I refer to as an emphatic spiritual tantrum? These creepy-crawlies have served me well, keeping me alive and helping me serve my clients, both living and deceased. That is why my most terrifying assignment didn't begin with a chill down my spine or a prickle of hair, but with a complete and utter stillness. I pushed the weathered door open, expecting the telltale squeak of neglect, but it swung soundlessly, as if the rusted hinges were reluctant to fit the cliché. I paused in the doorway to let the home's energy wash around me, and get a feel for what kind of tenet I was about to deal with. Nothing and not a single whisper of warning, not the angry pressing of intrusion, not even a swirl of dust in the air. To the untrained civilian, this atmosphere may sound welcoming, even peaceful. Who wouldn't want a nice, quiet space to come home to, but this was not the quiet of a peaceful home. This was the anticipatory stillness of a house too scared to breathe. My feet were rooted to the threshold, knowing better than to carry me into a space that clearly didn't want me there. After building up a reserve of courage, I forced myself into the house. My boots fell heavily on the floor, but the hard wood, just like the hinges, knew better than to disturb the stillness with a clumsy echo. Stepping cautiously around the main level, I took in the evidence of several failed businesses having swept into the space, thinking it would be the one to stick, only to be flushed out a month later. The stairs barely creaked as I climbed to the upper level, the sound seeming to muffle before it reached my ears. I hoped for the familiarity of being watched from behind as I poked my head into various rooms, but the persistent loneliness saturated this space as well. With no other options or answers, I reluctantly made my way to the basement stairs. The stone steps led to a chilling blackness I didn't want to invade. I huffed in frustration, give me an angry poltergeist who screams profanities and shoves me out of the house. I'd even take on a banshee without my earplugs, anything but this stifling stillness. But it was my job to step boldly into dark corners when others would use any excuse to back away. With a grounding breath I remembered the desperation of the client who hired me and, against my better judgment descended the steps. The quiet oppression of the upper levels didn't compare to the enveloping stillness of the cellar. This space had spent so long in seclusion, the darkness so accustomed to being forgotten, that my presence felt unforgivable. By merely standing there, I proved to the shadows and cobwebs that there was consciousness which had callously forgotten them. My very existence stood as a sharp remembrance of abandonment, a fact which had long since been forgotten, and was now resurfacing with pain and loathing. For the first time in my career, I felt like the intruder. My lungs pulled tentatively on the stale air as I stepped further into the darkness. I didn't dare pull out my light, not from fear of revealing something, but knowing that the light would be a greater offense even than my presence. The heavy nothingness pressed around me, numbing my faculties one by one, slowly stripping me of any connection with the physical world. As my sense of self slipped away, I began to notice a nonverbal dialogue chanted by countless non voices. Join us. We are one. We are not. Join us. The choir of non voices, it was deafening and soundless all at once. The words. More an impression than actual voices, bouncing around what was left of my mind. I sunk deeper until even the blackness slipped away, any form of consciousness dissipating into the void. All sense of identity and memory evaporated into a formless collective. We both existed throughout the farthest reaches of the universe and nowhere at all. My soul was effectively snuffed out, absorbed into nothingness. My ears popped. (sighs) Sight and sensation returned to me, and I found myself standing back at the top of the cellar stairs. The darkness below stared up at me in warning, daring me to bring the premonition to pass. As carefully and deftly as I could, I backed away from the stairs and left the house to rot in stubborn loneliness. I haven't felt quite right since the encounter. Dust accumulating in my apartment doesn't bother me anymore, and the thought of going out on the weekends makes me sick. I pause at doorways, finding the transition between rooms too much of a burden. And doesn't my room just look more beautiful when the drapes are closed and still? Time has become difficult to track. It's hard to say how long I've been sitting here, avoiding the faucets and light switches. They say uh, emptiness is just the absence of something. But I know better. No, it is a presence, a force, a silence that digests sound. It is a darkness which occupies space and evicts light, and if you dare disturb it, it will claim you. I have become an intruder in my own home, my own mind. Even my thoughts seem unbearably loud. I am slipping into nothing, and the worst part is we don't even care.
10: Dash cam. By Matthew K. Lehman. I awoke to a musky, rotting scent that reminded me of a dead raccoon I saw as a kid. Confused, I opened my eyes and looked up. Someone was standing next to the bed, watching me. Gasping, I switched on the bedside lamp. It was my husband. Jared, shit! Honey, you scared me! It was over a half an hour past his usual time getting home from his night shift. He stared wordlessly at me with a blank stare. I quickly realized how sickly he looked. His skin abnormally pale, his eyes dark and bloodshot. Baby, are you okay? You don't look so good. His vacant stare never changed. Worried he might be coming down with something, I reached up and felt his forehead. To my surprise, his skin was ice cold. I was no doctor, but even I knew that wasn't normal. You're freezing. Let's get you into the shower. I helped him out of his clothes and into a warm shower, which only accentuated the smell that seemed to be coming from him. I kept questioning him about what happened, but he only gave vague, expressionless responses. In the light of the bathroom, I saw more clearly that his skin had turned an ugly shade of gray. Leaving the door cracked, I called a couple of his co-workers and asked if anything had happened to him. They all said he seemed fine when he left work, and they hadn't noticed anything different. So Whatever happened, must have been on his way home. After some consideration, I ultimately thought of his dash cam. And while I knew it was a long shot, it could have the answers. I ran out to the car, noticing that the smell from before was just as bad in there as I hurried to retrieve the camera. Back inside, I plugged it into my laptop in the living room, randomly starting from one of the most recent videos. The first few recordings showed nothing out of the ordinary—just him driving over a long stretch of empty road, singing along to the radio and tapping out the beat on the steering wheel.
20: Then it happened. He
10: was singing to "Locked Out of Heaven" by Bruno Mars when his headlights illuminated a pale, skinny figure in the road. Jarrett swore as his car collided with it and spun to a screeching stop several feet away. I clasped my hands over my mouth, terrified that he had killed someone. The car sat, facing whatever he'd just hit, which lay still in the middle of the road. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. shit. He got out and approached the figure, leaving the door open. (laughs) I heard him let out a disgusted grunt, covering his nose, as if from some awful stench.
21: Are are you all right?
10: He cautioningly inched closer, and I struggled to discern the figure. It looked like a person, maybe, but something was off. They wore no clothes and looked unnaturally pale and far too thin. Jared finally reached it, and I could tell from his body language that he was just as clueless as me. Suddenly a limb shot up and snatched his face, making me jump. Jared screamed as he tried to pry the thing's long, worm-like fingers away, but it held fast, standing slowly. I gasped in horror. This thing was no person. It had no defining features, no face to speak of, no marks. It was just this thin, grey, fleshy thing almost like a blank template of a human. Its movements were disturbingly calm, even graceful, as it rose to Jared's height. My husband kept screaming and fighting to free himself, but it was unaffected. My insides went cold at what happened next. Jared began to melt. His screaming grew even louder as his skin simply melted away from his body, starting from where the appendage had held his face and spreading down. The liquefied skin crawled along the figure's extending arm, bit by bit, filling out its physique with the stolen flesh. Before long, Jared's screaming died and he went limp. Muscle tissue went next, followed by bone, until finally there was nothing left but his clothes, which flopped to the ground. Tears stung my eyes and my entire body trembled. In seconds, the thing literally fleshed out and took a human appearance. I shook my head in denial as it turned to face the car and my husband, or a perfect replica, stared at me through the screen. The thing then slowly retrieved his clothes and entered the car. Closing the door. That's when I realized that putrid smell had suddenly grown unbearable, and I heard the faint sound of water dripping directly behind me.
13: A Physician on Cats by Kate West When I was a boy, common wisdom did not allow cats into the room of a child. They were like the owl, the wild ram, certain as any servant of Satan to smother and steal an infant's breath. But progress outpaces superstition. And it has become the fashion to gift our babes, their own small wards and wardens. Perhaps a terrier, possessed of that same scrappy nobility of the nanny class. Else a hare, soft in the hand, softer in the stew pot. Ample training for our would-be rulers. Harmless. I maintain greater suspicion upon the point of the house cat... It was a time of sickness. The mother, some society matron, admitted me personally. My patient could not have been more than six and already putrescent. She yet breathed, but I knew from the stench that there would be no saving her.
4: Poor Gus has stood vigil.
13: There he was, perched upon her daughter's lap and purring.
4: It gives me some comfort to see he loves her so.
13: It appeared to me rather as though the devil had crowned himself in stripy orange indolence. His throne lay still and pitiable, and I thought of my own mother's stories of the cat's wide grin, leeching what warmth, what life remained to her, ears curled to ghastly horns, I exiled such fantasies to the parlor with the lady of the house. These are times of science. Reason and God are king. But my hand lifted the blanket, and it was not reason or God that drew the ghastly scene. The girl shuddered, shallow breath retching into spasms. Something beneath her dress oozed. Pulsed. The black prongs of a grave beetle tore forth, then another, from the sudden edges of the wound. The tabby uprooted itself, tail held at mast, then leapt, crunched a thoughtless snap between its jaws, uncaring for the bloody protrusion of skin or the moan pressed from a delicate rib cage. As swiftly as it abandoned post, the beast then circled and turned piss-yellow eyes upon me.
22: Ah. Ah.
13: I must have cried out, for then its ears flattened, teeth bared. Ah. Closer to her I could hear the scrabble of tiny legs, the buzz of flies... The rot drew them to her transfigured child into living larder. A cat trap of a corpse. How loyal is Puss indeed. I confess that I fled. I left the beast to its work and a mother to her sweet delusion. A week later, Gus would lie above her tomb. Lays upon white marble and the cost of human progress.
6: Scared stiff by Alexander Hay. In hindsight, making a Halloween-themed porno in an abandoned mortuary was not the brightest idea. But when opportunity presents itself, you go in all barrels, right? That's what I thought when my boss at Channel Eros, the UK's second favourite adult subscription service, gave me the brief. In summary, Jug Hilda the Naughty Sex Witch accidentally turns her black cat into a sex-crazed cat girl. Jug Hilda and the cat girl proceed to have it off with each other, kinky Cthulhu and some inbred cannibal hillbilly mutants. Then the cat girl decides she wants to be a cat again. Don't ask questions. So Jug Hilda decides they need to have a gangbang with the five sexiest dead men in history in order to break the spell. Cue a bit of sapphic necromancy at a creepy old mortuary. They summon Casanova, Rasputin, Lord Byron, John Holmes and Rudolf Valentino. And then, the grand finale. jizz than a Croatian sperm bank. Jughilda passes out through all the orgasms, but wakes the next morning. The five sexiest dead men have all turned back to dust, and the cat girl's now a black cat again. So Jughilda breaks the fourth wall, looks into the camera and says... Well, I guess the cat got the cream after all. But um, tish roll credits. It wasn't high art, I suppose, but it was a living. The aim was to get Jug Hilda's Halloween Humpathon shot, cut, and wrapped up in time for its premiere in early October, and it was my job to direct the final scene. We set up the shoot after cleaning up all the dirt, debris, and dead pigeons out of the desolate old mortuary – it looked quite fetching, once we decked it out with all the cobwebs and Halloween decorations I'd bought at the nearest pound shop. As we readied the shoot, I said hello to Jug Hilda. It was the first time we'd worked together, though she'd been in the industry for a while.
23: I was doing a BA in drama at Exeter. Then, my boyfriend legged it after he got me pregnant. I kept the baby, so mum and dad disowned me.
6: How's it been working with Nina the cat girl? I asked, trying to change the subject. Nina was doing her warm-up stretches nearby, next to the embalming table.
23: Oh, a total professional. She's very punctual.
6: So we began filming the climactic scene. The mortuary soon echoed with sex noises, squelching and moaning... John Holmes would have been proud. Rasputin was doing wonders with his bony M, Valentino was workmanlike. But Byron kept losing his balance because of his club foot, and Casanova just wasn't doing it for me. A mixed bag. It was then that I saw my breath rise out of me like smoke. All of a sudden it had gotten cold. Under the hot glare of the lights, our cast were too engaged with each other to notice... So I looked over at Gav, the cameraman. Is it me or is it cold? But then I saw his breath. And Norman, the boom operator's breath too. I shivered. It was a warm evening in late September. What was going on? Suddenly, the lights started to flicker. And the car stopped what and who they were doing. Jug Hilda looked over at me with a puzzled look on her face.
23: What's going on,
6: Debs? Cut. Then I heard a scream. Norman had dropped his boom and was pointing, speechless at the darkness of the mortuary beyond our set. I looked over. Shit. At first it looked like a growing cloud of fog. But then... I could see figures in the mist. Some looked like transparent echoes of the long dead. Others, rotting corpses. And yet more were just writhing masses of rags, bone, and screaming horror. As one, they slowly marched and drifted towards us. Jug Hilda and her co-stars, plus Norman, fled, grabbing what clothes they could, and ran out of the mortuary. Come on,
24: Debs.
6: But I stayed. ...rooted to the spot. Gav likewise stood very still as the horrors gathered on the set. We were transfixed by what was unfolding in front of us. And then they began to caress... ...fondle and lick each other. Before descending into a writhing mass of copulating corpses, revenants, wraiths and phantoms... ...and who knows what else. Our orgy had awoken these restless spirits and given them ideas Hideous, wheezing rasps of lust and desire filled the air Oozing torrents of ectoplasm began to flow Keep filming Gavin nodded (laughs) as if in a daze The boss wanted a grand finale He was going to get one After all, who needs porn when you've got the living dead?
20: Preparation is Key by Angela Nolan. My greatest fear is being buried alive. I read about the Victorians being saved by the bell, and I've had the same nightmare countless times since. I wake up, go to roll over and stretch, and there just isn't enough space. I bang my shoulder against the side of the coffin, and I manage to awkwardly get my other arm there to rub the pain away. My breathing starts to come in hot, rapid bursts as I realize where I am. I scream at the top of my lungs, but of course nobody can hear me. The exact length of time varies, but after a period of pure panic, I somehow force myself to calm a little, and that's when I hear it. The wood is creaking. I give one last desperate scream and it splinters directly above my head, filling my mouth with bitter soil. I always wake up at that point with a scream bubbling in my throat and a sense of pressure on my chest. The thing is, I've had that dream since I was a teenager, but when it really happened, it was different. You see, two weeks ago, I got into a car accident. The last thing I remember seeing were tiny crystals of glass tinged with red glittering on the road. When I woke up in the coffin, I assumed it was the nightmare again, but after I managed to calm myself, I didn't hear the creaking. I realized my worst fear had come true and sobbed for what felt like forever. Luckily... A decade of those nightmares had caused me to research how to break out if it ever happened. I knew where the weak spots were. I knew to cover my face with my shirt as the soil rushed in. It was traumatic, but I made it out. I rushed home and was about to ring my family when I realised why I was feeling strange. As soon as I had stopped focusing on it, I had stopped breathing. It seems I had only been doing so out of habit. I pressed my fingers to my neck. No pulse, as I suspected. Apparently, I hadn't been buried alive. I've been holed up in my house ever since. I'm scared to let anyone know what happened in case I get carted off and experimented on. Presumably my family will come to clear out my house soon, and I don't know what I'll do then. I don't sleep, and I'm always on edge, so passing the time is hard. The other thing that's worrying me is I haven't needed to eat, but this morning I developed a deep, gnawing hunger that nothing in the cupboards will satisfy.
25: sound of running water by tor anders alvin the sound of running water snap back to reality my glass overflowing must have phased out again for a moment sleep deprivation stress exhaustion Depression. I chug the water in one go, leaving enough to splash my face with. You need to wake up, Patricia. Turn faucet off. Stumble into the living room. Eyes blinking rapidly. Kick-starting brain. Flickering gaze. Can't seem to focus. Who let the rattle there? Where are the twins? What time is it? Damn it, we have to get ready for school. Move the crib out of the way. Why is it always in the way? Who keeps moving it? Where are the twins? have to get breakfast ready the sound of running water heather holly who turned on the washing machine they're watching tv tv before breakfast on a school day I swear kids these days addicted to a continuous stream of entertainment Gather all the clothes thrown randomly about My back hurting something fierce Should have someone over to look at the window I can feel the draft from across the room No answer Volume too high Figures Gotta check it myself then Always by myself Saunter to the hallway Too much to do Too much on my mind I can't trust Holly or Heather to run the washing machine by themselves Gotta double check it Turn it off. Look through all the wet, heavy clothes. The sound of running water. The shower. Kevin. Why the hell didn't he help us get ready before getting in the shower? Is it really so hard to acknowledge my existence? Making breakfast now we're gonna be late we're always late thoughts colliding with thoughts leaving an empty vacuum behind I can't concentrate the clouding my mind no room for consciousness to form shower turns off I somehow get everything ready Breakfast, the lunch boxes, clean clothes. But something feels off. Something keeps escaping me. It's there. Somewhere in the back of my mind. Something I was supposed to remember. Something important. The sound of running water.
3: Patricia! What's wrong?
25: Kevin standing at the end of the hallway, dripping with water, face all stained with worry. I... I don't know. The sound of running water.
3: Patricia, where's
25: Erica? Where's the baby? The sound of running water... Moment of clarity. Blood rushing to my head, lifting the somber haze in my mind. Instant action. Run to the bathroom. Wet floor outside. Too wet.
9: Pull the door open. Sound of my own desperate and blood-curdling scream. She's not in there anymore.
25: Not really. A bluish complexion on a tiny body floating calmly face down in the overflowing bathtub. So calm. Serene. Complete silence. Almost complete silence. Silence, and the sound of running water.
0: Horror Writers Are Monsters by Jeremiah Dylan Cook Horror writers are monsters, and I need to kill them. My most recent catch makes a racket in the trunk, but he's the eighth horror writer I've put back there, and none of the others have escaped. Mr. Cook is a relative newcomer to the horror scene, but it's better to pluck them when they're young than to let them bloom. This one's mind has already birthed one too many twisted visions. His brain is as rotten as the blasphemies they show on television during October. I focus on the dark, forested road ahead. I wouldn't want to hit an animal and complicate the situation. You've got a 1 in 63 chance of hitting a deer every time you set out on the road in Pennsylvania. I'm handy with facts like that. Just like I know exactly what hole to drop Mr. Cook down in Centralia. You've probably heard about Centralia before. It used to be a town in northeastern Pennsylvania. Some trash got lit on fire and hit a nearby pocket of coal. Pretty soon, everything under the place was boiling. Some residents hung on for a while, but eventually it turned into a ghost town. That tends to happen when a flaming hole might suck down your home at any moment. Thankfully, I grew up around here, and I created a little map of the most stable areas with the best holes. The one I've dumped the other riders in is just up the road a bit. It's funny to think that I used to want to be one of these people. I'd done everything I needed to do to become a famous author. I'd read all the books, studied all the techniques, and even completed my Master of Fine Arts in writing. Yet, I remained unpublished and working in state government. Every day was more mindless than the last. I drafted emails, I edited the emails, and I sent them out to staff. Rinse and repeat. During my short breaks, I'd scroll through social media, trying to drum up interest in my various profiles. I'd done every writer's lift, hashtag, and trendy thing I could to get noticed. My followers never got bigger than a paltry 66. After three years of living this way, I decided I needed a new approach. I started keeping closer and closer tabs on the writers I saw trending upward. I fixated on one writer in particular. Gus Adams. He was an indie horror writer out of Philadelphia. I'd followed his career on and off over the years. We attended the same university, and we were roughly the same age, so I used him as a kind of measuring stick. While I spun my wheels, he started getting stories published. Eventually, he got a big book deal through a major publisher. I snapped when I got the news of his success on the same day my latest fiction was rejected. I drove out to his apartment that night. Over the years, Adams had been exceedingly free with his personal information, and I deduced his address. I waited outside his home until he took his dog for a late walk. He was so consumed by his phone that he didn't notice me creeping up behind him with my tire iron. The hit knocked him cold, and I got him into my trunk without incident. I left his dog tied to a fence. Yeah, but don't worry. Per the local news, the dog was found the next day. Adams stayed in my trunk until I realized Centralia would be the perfect spot to get rid of him. I drove into the heart of Pennsylvania's coal country on a dark and stormy night. The fiery pit glowed in the darkness as toxic fumes rose from the earth. Adams was weakened from his days starving in my trunk. I knocked him into the hole without much fuss. Immediately after he vanished from view, something I can't fully explain happened. Fresh ideas started pouring into my mind. I recognized some of them as belonging to Adam's work. Somehow tossing him into that hole gave me his imagination, his creativity, his muse. I was repulsed. I couldn't believe how sick his mind was. The world was done a favor by his death. The same has been true of the six other writers I've dropped into the depths of Centralia. Each one's mind writhed with horrible tentacular obscenities and satanic scenes of chaotic evil. Their ilk must be ended, and thankfully the world has put me here to get rid of them. I direct my car into the small space beside the road where I've parked every other time I've come here. I kill the lights and engine. My tire iron is clutched tightly in my hand as I head for the back of the car. To my surprise, the trunk is open, and Mr. Cook is gone. He must have gotten out while I was reminiscing over my past. Hmm, perhaps I should have paid more attention to the kicking sounds. Oh well, I'll see if I can find him. He couldn't have gotten too far on foot. He must be injured from tumbling out of my moving vehicle and starved from his days of imprisonment. Even if I can't find him, he'll never be able to identify me. I was too careful. Besides, I've got a much bigger horror writer I can't wait to abduct next. I've already taken time off work for my trip to Maine next week.
1: Draw by Christopher Alex Ray I'm moving the tools back into the barn just as the sun is setting. The corn in the field rustles in the red glow of evening as black storm clouds begin to fill the sky. I walk past the scarecrow Leaning idly against the tractor as I haul in the plow. The wheels screeching as I move to the back of the barn. A sudden rush wind causes the door to slam shut behind me. The bulb hanging from the ceiling swings, making my shadow twist. That's when I realize. That the Scarecrow should be in the field,
24: Glass by Taylor R. Wallace. I hate the people who knock on the glass. Every single day, I have my hands full. They tip-tap-tap incessantly. Then, the moment I open the door... No one's there. But yesterday, I was ready. A squirt gun full of red dye ought to teach them, I thought... I had been waiting an hour, and was thinking of giving up when I heard it. Tip-tap. Tip-tap. I sprang, and ripped the door open. No one. But how? They couldn't have run that fast. I shook my head. Wondering if I was crazy. Turning back inside, I looked in the mirror by the coat rack and wondered. Maybe it had been that white-eyed little boy with no mouth who stared back.
21: Notes from the exorcism of Sarah Pinocchio By Tor Anders Olven Day one Sarah Pinocchio had a weird fucking surname And she was also possessed by a demon Her mother reached out to me after her daughter had done the old 360 head spin Fairly sure sign of demonic possession Thus, I packed my ship and hustled it out to 66.6 Fletcher Street, post-haste. Yeah, she looks a bit pale, yeah? I noted, staring at the young girl. Vitamin deficiency, possibly.
23: But she's hovering mid-air? Mm-hmm.
21: I nodded. Valid point. Day two. An initial test showed signs of a stage three demonic possession. Those fuckers are rare, let me tell you. I knew the poor thing would die if I attempted a full-on exorcism, so I chilled out for a bit and read her some Bible verses, occasionally sprinkling her with some holy water. Jesus, um, compels you. I'll fuck you dead, grandma, shreds! Well, that's uncalled for. Day three. The mother is on my case like a leech to an eyeball. Jesus, lady, just let me do my job, will you? I've done this shit for decades, but Karen over here has seen the movies. The movies.
23: Aren't you supposed to force the demon out?
21: Lady, you don't want to force those lads to do anything. Day four. The demon is getting frisky. The child is shedding skin like she's a big old anaconda, and the pulsating black veins underneath remind me of chocolate-glazed strawberries for some reason. Leave the kid alone, will you? I ask of the dark presence. Fuck you and your dead grandma, man. What's your beef with my grandma? Day five. The demon is starting to rear its ugly head. Every once in a while Sarah's eyes pop out their sockets and these disgusting fucking maggoty appendages squirm out of them. Not sure what that's all about. It's pretty fucking weird. I awkwardly push them back in with a pencil and place the eyes back gently. Day six. Karen is fed up with me. She says she'll call the police. Really, lady, the police? They don't have the best track record with shit they don't understand, do they? Look, Karen, I say. Give her a day or two and I'll have this shit sorted.
23: My name's Melinda, and you better be telling the truth.
21: Day seven. The demon is ripe for the popping. You can tell by the way the veins swell with black fluid and also by the manner in which it murders the mother, Karen. Oh, sorry, I mean Melinda. I had to close my eyes but the sounds alone were enough to make me up chuck a little bit into my mouth. We done here? I asked the demon. Thank you, Black Father Thomas, for keeping the child alive while I grew. Anytime. I shrug. Let the big boss know, will you? Your family remains safe from the disclosing anger. Much appreciated. Except your fucking grandma. Man. Oh, come on.
11: Animal Rights by Alex Woodrow. As soon as that video of a deer nudging Scrabble tiles across a patio table to spell please went viral, it was all over for us. Within hours, all the activists went, we told you so. Even Katie and I tossed the last of the hamburgers, figuring it was probably falafel time. Sure, some people doubled down. The local steakhouse put on a special where, if you could eat three steaks while looking at the owner's dog in the eye, they were free. I doubt anyone made it once he started bark-horking good boy at them. Pigs were the first to form full sentences, as determined and enthusiastic as we were horrified. They were saying, Please eat me. Even the most stalwart lost their appetites then. Please eat me. I'm so good take my life I'm a good boy of course we all refused now they won't leave us alone knock knock ginger
23: By Christina Orley. It was the fall of 99, and my parents were going on holiday. I was taking a break this semester. Classes had gotten rather stressful, and I needed some time to relax. So I went home. It was the last weekend of October. Mom and Dad were leaving for Cancun on Monday. They made sure that I had the hotel contact info, access to emergency money, and plant-watering instructions before they left. The week uneventfully flew by, and next thing I knew, it was Friday. Halloween. Mum had stockpiled candy so that I wouldn't run out. One year, Mrs. Davis ran out of candy, and the next morning their house was covered in broken eggs, toilet paper, and half-burnt bags of dog poop. My mum was not about to let that happen to her house. I passed out candy to kids dressed up as Neo, Kenny from South Park, the Scream Slasher, and a slew of other characters. The kids knocked on the door all the way up until 9pm. When the last kid knocked on the door, I emptied the bowl into a bag and then shut off the porch light. I made some popcorn, poured a glass of wine, and turned on the television, hoping to catch a scary movie. I was just starting to nod off during Halloween, too, when I heard a knock at the front door. Half asleep, I looked over at the wall clock. It was midnight. I walked over to the window and peeked out through the curtain. There wasn't anyone there. I figured it was some teens playing Knock Knock Ginger and went back to the couch. Semi awake now, I started to finish my wine when I heard another knock. I went to look out, but as soon as I was at the window, I heard a knock come from the back door. This one kind of freaked me out. I looked out front and didn't see anything, so I walked into the kitchen and peered out the side window. Nothing. Damn kids. God, I sound like my parents. I went back into the living room, picked up my bowl and wine glass and took them into the kitchen. There was a knock at the front door again. By now, I was flustered. I marched to the front door and flung it open, ready to yell some obscenities at some kids. There wasn't anyone there. Frustrated, I yelled out into the night. Go for it! Back inside, I locked the doors, turned off the TV, shut off the downstairs lights and went upstairs to bed. I just shut my bedroom door when I noticed headlights pulling into the neighbor's driveway. I looked outside and saw Mr. Davis stagger into his house, oblivious to the toilet paper that hung from his tree. I flipped the light switch off and crawled into bed. I wasn't asleep 15 minutes before I heard the faint knocking on the front door again. Rubbing my eyes, I got out of bed and walked over to my window. Like I expected, there wasn't anyone out there. Defeated, I turned to climb back into bed but froze as I heard another knock. This time, it was at my bedroom door.
22: Incoming Call By Annalise Amelia Boyd Rhonda steps through the door, mentally running through her routine. Check the locks on the doors, check under the bed, the closet, the curtains, the bathroom. She shuts the door, locks it, checks it twice. Rhonda walks to the back door, Checks its lock twice. To the bedroom. She checks the closet and draws the curtains. There'd be news reports of a prowler targeting single women who live alone in the area. Rhonda lives alone. To the bathroom. Rhonda peeks behind the shower curtain and sees an empty tub. Back to the bedroom. Rhonda swaps her uniform for a nightgown, turns off the light, and slips into bed. Her mobile phone comes alive with the drone of an incoming call. She sits up and checks the nightstand. Her phone lays still and silent. She can still hear the rumble of a vibrating phone against wood. The blood in her veins grows icy. There was one place she'd neglected to check. The buzzing ceases. There's movement beneath her. Under the bed,
9: Motherhood by Amanda Fernandez. No, you're not taking our daughter away. This wasn't an accident. We planned for her. We talked about it for hours. We dreamed of our little girl for months while we filled out the paperwork. Anna and I laughed together. We cried over her picture. We made plans about trips to Disney World and PTA meetings and first words, first steps. We loved her long before we held her in our arms, and we loved her still when she bit that boy's hand off. It isn't easy. It never was. But we make adjustments. We compromise. And I will feed every inch of your children to my daughter before I let her starve. No. She's not just a little girl. But honestly, Susan, your mistake was thinking we give a fuck. Our love is not conditional. It is boundless. Now, step away from my daughter.
19: For You By Scott Newman. I'm not going to do it for you. That was a phrase I'd heard more than any other during my childhood. Whether it was directed at me or one of my siblings, it mattered not. Maybe you had a similar upbringing. Maybe, like me, you had parents and grandparents that taught you at a young age to take responsibility for your thoughts and actions. Kids nowadays have it way too easy, it seems. And as a grown man and established parent myself, it's no surprise I've found myself repeating this same set of words to my own children. When my oldest boy was ten, he got into trouble at school because he had been mouthing off to the teacher. After leaving the principal's office, we walked with an invisible wall of silence between us. The principal decided that he should write a letter of apology, a decision I definitely agreed with. After getting home, I sat him down at the kitchen table with a pencil and paper. He stared at them for a moment before he looked up to meet my eyes. I'm not going to do it for you. When he turned 12, we got him a puppy as a birthday present. He had been asking for another dog for a few years since our other one had passed away. My wife and I both told him that we would as long as he agreed to be responsible for taking care of it. Not that we wouldn't help when needed, but we saw this as an opportunity for him to show us he could handle it. He did as he had promised, and we enjoyed the puppy for some time as a family. One time he was careless and left some chocolate candy sitting out where the dog could get to it. We were all devastated, but it hit my boy the worst. We agreed to give the dog a proper burial in the backyard, but our son didn't want to be the one to do it. I explained that this was part of caring for the dog, even in death. I handed him a shovel. I'm not going to do it for you. Then last night, I was alone at home for the evening when the doorbell rang. My son, now a young man, stood on our front porch, hands and clothes running red in blood. His hair was a mess, and he had tears streaming down his face.
11: Dad... I've done something terrible. I didn't want
19: to... I looked past him to the car that he had backed up in our driveway. The streaks of red stood out immediately against the white of the trunk and bumper. I looked back to my son, who was now staring down at his feet. Back it up all the way to the garage grabbed some supplies from the basement and walked outside to meet him. He had stopped crying. I handed him the shovel. I'm not going to do it for you.
2: By Zachary Gale For as long as I can remember, I've been scared of drowning. As we'd walked to the pond in the woods, my best friend Sarah always called me a chicken. But she just never understood. It was too quiet out there, too isolated. No one would hear or get there fast enough to help. Besides, who knew what was in there? Sarah has been missing for a week now. She ran off after her parents caught us together and started screaming about God and sin and the gaze. No one has found her because no one wants to listen. I know where she is. I managed to sneak out and walk to the pond. She's there, just like I thought. I sit and stare into the water, into Sarah's pale, bloated face. Slowly, she reaches out to me. I've always been afraid of drowning, but it isn't so bad when you've got a friend.
26: Open House by Gus Wood. After Mom drank the whole bottle, took us to the garage, closed the door, and drove us to sleep, my brother and I woke up as ghosts. We couldn't believe our luck. We'd rattle vases, scare realtors, and make cell phones and socks go missing for weeks. We'd giggle as families moved in and out red-faced from our mischief. Between families, we'd play hide-and-seek, floating from room to room. It was lonely, but it was our home. Then developers came and kept coming no matter how many coffees we spilled or blueprints we blew into the wind. It's no fun being ghosts when your haunted house gets knocked down. No fun chasing my brother around scaffolding. When they build something new, I hope the ghost of our old house will float through the foundation, rise from the scaffolding, and welcome us home.
27: Kittens for Sale by Chris Allenott. I was 13 minutes into my lunch hour when I heard the sound. As per usual, I'd taken a brisk walk around the block, finishing back in front of the sandwich shop just beside Barker and Straub's executive office, where I worked as a ruthlessly efficient, and terribly modest, data clerk. I was replaying Amanda's voicemail again, dissecting her tone to see where, exactly, I'd fucked up. Currently, I was staring at the calendar on my phone, trying to remember if it had something to do with forgetting her. Oh. Ah, fuck. Birthday. I'd had the door to Subtown halfway open when I suddenly noticed the mewling coming from the alley just a few feet away. The cardboard sign read kittens for sale. It was hand-lettered and marker and propped up against a large cardboard box. The seller was about eight years old and was currently sitting against the dusty red brick of my workplace.
24: Wanna buy a kitty, mister?
27: She got to her feet and raised her head of dirty blonde curls to look at me. As John Straub often remarked during his weekly staff meetings, timing is everything. I looked at the box and saw a way out of my predicament. At that moment, I could practically hear Amanda's squeals of rapture at his sweet little fluffy surprise. Well, that depends, sweetie. How much are they? I had my hand on my wallet, hoping sincerely that I'd be buying a cat in the next few minutes, not being mugged from behind by this kid's hidden accomplice.
24: I don't know how much, mister. What do you think they're worth?
27: The girl was looking directly at me now. Her eyes were the color of lake water, and there was a musty, fungal odor coming from her, like wet laundry left out too long. I wondered if she was homeless. At the same time, that was no reason not to make a good deal. How does $10 sound? The girl looked back at the box.
24: I guess that would be okay. Only...
27: I paused. Here was the catch. Only what?
24: Only I don't want you to have one, if you're not going to take good care of it. They're sad right now, because they weren't treated nice before. Right, kitties?
1: She tucked a strand
27: of wet hair behind her ear. And made psh-psh-psh sounds into the box. I didn't reply right away. Something wasn't right. Her hair wasn't wet before, was it? In response to her affections, the purring coming from the box got louder. I was feeling less and less at ease. Of course we'll take care of... I'm sorry, what's your
24: name? My friends call me Jenny, but my name's really Jennifer.
27: She was petting her brood now. The purring was like a motorboat, loud and constant. Jenny, I don't understand what you mean by before. Where did they come from?
10: I found them when I woke up this morning. They were lost, so I wanted to get them a good home. Kitty, kitty.
27: Her voice had changed. It sounded like she was speaking with her mouth full of... something... My phone buzzed. It would be Amanda trying to give me one last chance to bury myself. And that settled it. All right. Ginny, here's ten bucks. I'd love to buy a kitten. I moved to the box as I pulled out my wallet, wanting to pick up the damn cat and get on with my life as soon as possible. If not sooner. A moment later, when I saw... I dropped to my knees and vomited up what was left of my breakfast. Inside the box was an open garbage bag filled with soggy, bloated corpses. Five little heads looked up at me. Fish had eaten all their eyes and most of their noses. The mewling was louder than ever.
0: They were lost, mister. "'Nobody wanted them. Just like nobody wanted me. I guess you don't want us
27: either.' Her voice burbled down at me. All her humanity was gone, but she still managed to sound hurt. From where I knelt, the last thing I saw was Ginny walking deeper into the alley, gargling a lullaby to her kittens.' Loaded and bleached legs trailing seaweed behind them. The kittens were purring again.
0: Suddenly Shocking Volume 15 was produced by Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett for the No Sleep podcast featuring performances by Kyle Akers, David Alt, Jake Benson, Matthew Bradford, Ilana Charnel, Jeff Clement, James Cleveland, Jesse Cornett, Andy Cresswell, David Cummings, Mike Delgadio, Kristen DiMacurio, Nicole Doolin, Nicole Goodnight Ellie Hirschman, Atticus Jackson, Peter Lewis, Aaron Lillis, Danielle McRae, Jessica McAvoy, Tanya Milosevic, Mary Murphy, Lindsay Russo, Graham Rowett, Erica Sanderson, Penny Scott Andrews, Sarah Thomas, Wafia White, Guy Woodward, Mick Wingert, and Dan Zapula. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com to learn more about our show and our Season Pass memberships. Thank you for listening to Suddenly Shocking, Volume 15. This audio production is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors.